Hello, I'm Valerie Schmidt, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage today. It is John 11, 1 through 44, and it can be found in your pew Bibles on page 843. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. At the end of last week's sermon, I did something I don't normally do. I gave homework. Um, And I even used the word homework, and I hoped uh, it was clear I was using it sort of in a joking way. But the request was real. I asked you to look ahead and consider this story in John 11, asking the question, what tone of voice does Jesus, in verse 39, say, take away the stone? Now, you might not have been here last week, or you may have had every intention of thinking about that and reading about that, and it just didn't work out to do so. The dog may have ate your homework, but that's okay, because I'm going to give you my answer right from the beginning, that when Jesus says, take away the stone, he's angry. He's angry. Why he's angry and why his anger gives us hope, that'll be the focus of the sermon. So would you pray with me as we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we gather on Sunday mornings, we don't gather in a mythical place that is the happy world of Sunday mornings, but we gather in the real world. And it's in this real world that you desire to meet with us as we really are and to pour in your hope and your resurrection life. Would you do that even now through the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About two years into our marriage, my wife and I started attending a church called Salem Evangelical Free Church. Um, We loved Salem Church. Our youngest son, who 
at least for another year, runs out during first service to Children's Church. His name is Salem because of Salem Evangelical Free Church. After we had been attending a few months, the church gave us this pictorial directory, this, this kind of yearbook, so to speak, of the church. And we thought that was great, so we could learn the names and the faces. And that Sunday as we left, my wife was sitting in the passenger seat, flipping through the book, and occasionally glanced her way. And at a stoplight, my wife looked at me and said, there were a lot of pictures of people who were alone. Presumably, it's an older church, because many of them had passed away and lost a spouse and her eyes began to water and she said, I don't want to be alone. And I remember squeezing her hand and just kind of giving a half smile because what can you do? A few of the biblical authors refer to death as having a sting. Another author calls it an enemy to be destroyed. Many of you know this sting acutely. You, you feel it when you think about the day you scattered ashes you never wanted to scatter. You, you feel it if you've ever been to a funeral where the casket was a child's too small casket. You, you felt that sting. Students, you probably feel this too. And maybe not always from death, Perhaps just the pain of a best friend who moves away. The sting when your parents divorce or the friends of your parents divorce. It hurts, it stings. For others, we just feel it when we see the news. A few months ago, there were stories in Pittsburgh of of, of a nurse in a nursing home who actually took the life of people in the nursing home. Two people and then attempted a third. It's evil. And perhaps now more reported on, though more remote perhaps to us, is the stories of of rumors of war and wars. And in all these ways and more, we feel the sting of death. And so did the family in this passage. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And so did Jesus. And feeling this sting of death, it made him angry. Now I keep saying it made him angry, but I haven't shown you that that's true. But I want to spend the first part of explaining why I'm saying that, and then use the last part of the sermon to explain why that matters to you. We often find it difficult to tell the tone in written communication. You've thought about this before, right? I know because as a pastor, sometimes you sit in my office and you read me from your phone text messages and emails that you've received. Pastor, you say, what did she mean when she said this? It can be hard to know sometimes. But other times the tone is more obvious. The signals are clear. And I would submit to you that John 11.39 is more obvious. Jesus is angry. And I want to... I want to show you the signals. You don't need to remember all of this. Just just listen. Just listen. The first signal is the broader context 
of what I'll call the cross pressures around the Messiah. The cross pressures around the Messiah. In other words, people had different hopes for the Messiah, some of them biblical, some of them not so biblical. Some people wanted one kind of leader and others wanted another kind of leader. We talked about this last week in the story of Hanukkah that showed up in the passage. Roughly 150 years before Jesus, there was a leader named Judas Maccabeus and he led this violent rebellion which overthrew a foreign leader that was celebrated in the story of Hanukkah. Now, Rome was over Israel, and many wanted that kind of leader again, and that kind of Messiah. Which is why last week, the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus by asking, quote, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, tell us plainly, John 10.24. Now in our passage, a month or A little more has gone by and we're approaching the Passover. It's just around the corner. It's going to show up here soon in the book of John. And the same questions arise with Passover. Through Moses, God saved Israel from an Egyptian pharaoh. Which leader will now save Israel from a Roman Caesar? Again, these led to various cross pressures that made the situation explosive. This explains why you'll often see Jesus in the gospel stories. He'll do a miracle, and then he'll tell people not to tell people. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 43 through 45, Jesus, he heals this man with a skin disease. And then we read, quote, And Jesus sternly charged him, this healed man, can you imagine, just like, okay, someone wants to tell a baptism story, and we say, no, 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 don't, 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 don't tell how Jesus has changed your life, right? That's, what, that's what's going on here. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Why would Jesus do this? <laughs> Strange. If he heals someone, shout it from the mountaintops, Right? There's a strand of scholars, I don't know the best name, liberal scholars perhaps. I don't mean that as a dig, that's probably the name they would take under themselves. They, they look at stories like this and they say, well that's because Jesus knew he wasn't actually the Messiah and he didn't want to confuse people. But that's not what was happening at all. All we have to do is keep reading. The next verse says this, but the healed man Jesus says, don't say anything. And then it says, but the healed man went out and began to talk freely about it. He just couldn't help doing it. And to spread the news so that, listen, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. You see, Jesus is intentionally slow playing the announcement of his arrival because if he doesn't, the pressure is going to get out of hand. Which is why in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 15, it says that when he's doing the miracle that he's doing, they they want to come and make him king by force. That's why in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus repeatedly say things like, my hour is coming, but it's not yet here. He's waiting. And you see this signal 
That's pointing towards his anger in John 10 himself, itself, I should say. Jesus, in John 10, he had claimed to be the Messiah. The religious leaders take that to be blasphemy. They understood what he was saying. They just didn't believe it. And so they pick up stones to throw at him. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem, goes a few days' journey to where more people believed in him. And he's, he's, he's there for a little while. And the disciples are aware of this pressure. And so are his friends. Our passage, so if you have the Bible, leave it open, John 11. Our passage, verse 7, Jesus says, Let us go back to Judea. Meaning just outside Jerusalem. He's going to go to Bethany. How do the disciples respond? Verse 8. Rabbi, they say. The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? They know there's pressure. They know there's danger. We see this in verse 16 from Thomas as well. He's often called Doubting Thomas because of something he says later in the gospel. But look what he says here in verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas knows that to go back is not to risk death, but to experience death. And Mary and Martha knew this too. Look at their wording in verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, he's away, outside, insert safe. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice what they stop short of saying. Come back to Jerusalem. I think that's what they want to say, but they know it's risky. Again, I'm showing you the signals why Jesus is angry. This is just background that they all knew that we need to be reminded of. So, So far, I've shown the cultural backdrop is charged. Now, let me make it more real, more visceral. Consider the signal of love. Look, continue to look there at verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus loved Lazarus. We see this repeated in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, affirmed by the crowd in verse 36. Now, Jesus chose to let Lazarus die before raising him. It's weird to us, right? In some ways there's a parallel with The Lord's saving us, but letting us wonder from him before he saves us. Now we have baptism testimonies, right? Of wondering away and bringing it back. Why does he do it like that? The answer Jesus gives is to display the glory of God. This is strange to us. We might have chosen to do it differently, but this is how he does things. But that way of doing things, of prioritizing the glory of God in life after death, doesn't mean that Jesus is aloof or indifferent to the sting of death. He's not a robot. Jesus is God, but he is what theologians call the God-man. Fully God, fully man, and he grieves. We read this famously in verse 35. Ellie, you talked about memorizing verses. Here's another one we can memorize very quickly. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. One verse, 
So short, so simple, so profound. In love, he's grieving death. Not only Lazarus' death, but in, in the scheme of things, you just, you just, it's not hard to imagine. He's not only grieving Lazarus' death, but all death and all of its manifestations. The sting of death as the result of the cosmic rebellion against sin, of sin against God, and Jesus feels it. With this in mind, now look at the signal of verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That phrase, quote, but some of them is key. It shows up again in next week's passage. Exact same wording. Verse 46. And where we read that, but some of them, they go and they tattletale to the religious leaders. They see a man raised from the dead. And the first thing they do is, we need to tattletale about this. In other words, while snot and tears cover his weeping face, some people stand off on the corner and openly mock his ability, his power, and his love. He couldn't have done anything. The final signal is the, deep, the word deeply moved. Shows up 33, 38. We read that Jesus was deeply moved and then again deeply moved. Now, some versions will have a footnote because of the other ways this word is used in the New Testament that says indignant. <laughs> getting more clear, isn't it? Deeply moved, indignant. You getting the picture? What signals is this sending to us about his tone? The people want a violent Messiah leader. And Jesus is he's trying to slow play the announcement of his Messiahship for that very reason, so that he can define what it means to be Messiah on his own terms, in his own words, in his own actions. And on top of that, he was just in the capital city and the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Everyone around him, his disciples, his friends, worry that going back into the vicinity of Jerusalem will mean his death. Yet, he's compelled by love for his friends. And he's saddened by grief. Finally, while he weeps at the tomb of his friend, bystanders mock him. Perhaps you've heard about the danger of a home filling with gas, right? Leaking the stove, some other reason. The smallest spark could set it off. And just a year ago, and you could hear the explosion here at the church, just over a mile from the church, there was a home, and thankfully no one was killed, but they were working the street, gas main, and this house, a construction worker, a plumber, hit a pipe they were not supposed to hit, and the home begins to fill with gas. A firefighter that I know lives just across the street was over near our house doing something, and he showed me on his phone the picture of the roof exploding dozens of feet into the air. It was like, it was like a movie. In a similar way, Jerusalem is a house 
filling with gas. And all this pressure, the pressure over the Messiah, the fear of backlash from these religious leaders, the grief over the sting of death, the mocking of unbelief, knowing, knowing that any action would be the event that puts all the other events into motion, the, the event that would become his death. Jesus, knowing all of this, he stands up, wipes the tears from his eyes with his sleeve. He walks to the tomb. The crowd follows behind him and he yells, take away the stone. And they do. And then he calls Lazarus by name. He comes out. What a scene. What a scene. And there's no going back. So that's his tone, I think. But let me briefly share with you why his tone is not merely interesting. I think it's that. I think it's interesting, but it's not merely that. I want to explain why his anger gives you hope, gives us hope. We find in this passage the hope of the invitation to lament. Jesus may be angry, but he's not angry with those who believe. Even when they complain. And so we're invited We're invited through this passage to lament, to bring our laments to the Lord. Biblical lament is laying before the Lord our confusion, our frustration. Biblical lament means coming to the Lord to say, it seems like you promise this, but my experience seems to suggest otherwise. Now, that's more careful than the biblical authors are. They just say it. We say seems and suggest because it feels reverent. The biblical authors just say what they feel, just like Mary and Martha. Did you notice their lament to Jesus? They each make an identical lament. You could put your finger on verse 21 and 33 if you wanted to. You could be like, 21, 33, you would say, okay, like, and look at them. They're the exact same. First, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then later, Mary falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does it indicate that they both say the exact same thing? I think it says that for four days, that's what they were saying to each other. Now they say it to Jesus. Is he going to crush them? Is he going to be angry with them? Well, he gets angry, but not with them. Not with them. Because they are believing. The sisters don't only complain, which is part of also biblical lament. They don't only complain. In their lament, they also express their trust. For example, Martha adds, verse 22, but even now, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Which is maybe why Jesus prays out loud in verse 42. Church, this is what you can do. This is what you're invited to do. Even now, right now in your heart. 
Just tell God where you feel the sting. It seems like you promised this, Lord, but my experience seems to suggest otherwise. And you can resolve also with Mary to say, but even now I trust you. I don't know how. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how this thing gets removed, but I trust you. So that's one way the passage gives us hope. Let me give a few more. We're invited to lament. But we also see that the anger of Jesus brings hope because the anger of God is redemptive. We have hope because God's anger leads to action. His anger produces something constructive. I mean, there's so much anger in the world, right? Maybe there's a lot of anger in your heart. So little of that anger leads to anything redemptive. This is what the author of James writes about when he says, this is the letter to the churches, he says, know this, my brother, beloved brothers, brothers and sisters, He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What's the implication? There's a number of them, but I think one of the implications is that while our anger does not produce anything constructive, God's anger does, as it does here. Jesus speaks and life happens. The anger of God comes from his love and therefore his anger leads to redemption. The destruction of death, our final enemy, and this is a foretaste of that, a promise, so to speak. And that really leads to another encouragement, doesn't it? To hope. Did you notice that when Jesus speaks, When he calls the name of the dead man, the dead man comes to life. The voice of God creates what it commands. I'll say that again. The voice of God creates what it commands. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. The voice of God creates what it commands. John eleven forty three. Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. This means something hopeful for us. When you feel like the commands of God are so hard and so beyond you, on the one hand, you're looking at them rightly. You're saying, yeah, this is really hard. Commands of God are impossible, but what it also means is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Feel that as an encouragement, as hope. When you look into your life and you say, okay, this thing right here now feels dead, it feels lifeless, I don't see a way forward. Jesus can look at that thing and say, live. This is why we do baptisms in the service, in the main service. So that all of us, it, 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 it is this guard, just to, just to be over it, this, this, this curb against cynicism that can creep up in our hearts. It's a reminder that 
God is in the business of calling people from death to life. So, we have hope in our invitation to lament. We have hope that his anger is constructive. We have hope that his commands produce what he commands, his voice. We have hope that this passage is not just about Lazarus, but about every one of us. Look at Jesus' words. This is moving towards the close. 25, 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said this to Martha. But do you notice the phrase, whoever believes? And everyone who believes in me. Do you see that? What's that doing? This isn't just about Lazarus or Martha. Jesus is looking at you asking, do you believe this? And if you do, you can have hope. Earlier this year, a pastor and author named Timothy Keller passed away from cancer after a long ministry in New York. Providentially, months before he died, a well-written biography by Colin Hansen was published. I recently listened to the audiobook version, and at the end of the audiobook version, if you listen to that one instead of reading it, there's a few sermons from Keller at the end, and one of them is the sermon he preached the Sunday after 9-11 in 2001. And while the dust from the collapse of the World Trade Center's still coated most of downtown, and while New Yorkers and many others were deep in grief, Keller preached this very passage from John 11 to a packed church in Manhattan. He did it, he believed, as I believe, because seeing Jesus' anger over death is good for us. But not only is anger but because of the hope it extends to us. This passage points to the truth that everything sad is coming untrue. It's a line from the book of the Lord of the Rings. It comes near the end. Sam Ganji asks, will everything sad finally come untrue? In light of John 11, the answer to Sam's question The answer to the sting of death you feel is yes. In Jesus, everything sad is coming untrue and indeed is already now coming untrue. The stone is rolled away. Do you believe this? Invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in song. Would you pray with me? Lord, I can understand the impulse of some when they look at this passage to explain the miraculous away. It is a wild story. This doesn't just happen. But you also 
broke in and are breaking into the real world. And so, Lord, would you give us the eyes of faith to believe and to trust and to hope and to celebrate not only what you are doing, but what you promise to do. We pray this in Jesus' name.